Well, we continue in our study of Genesis, uh, very nearing the end of the beginning. We will transition into the patriarchs very, very quickly. But here we are looking at Genesis 11, Genesis 10, or the table of nations. We see how the world will eventually grow and expand through the sons of Noah. Genesis 11, or the Tower of Babel, will tell us how this expansion actually has occurred. There's a striking similarity between the event recorded here and the event in the garden with the sin of Adam and Eve. Eve's ambition was to achieve power independently from God. If you remember, when God created the garden, He gave them free roam to do anything they wanted with the exception of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But as Eve listened to the lie of the serpent, she desired something that sounded good to her apart from the provision of God, apart from being dependent upon God. So Genesis 3, 5, and 6, we read this. The serpent said, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Then Eve contemplated those words. And then in verse 6 it says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband and with her, and he ate. When both had eaten and sinned, they were then expelled from the garden. Genesis 3.22, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so as we will see, the people of Babel also desired power independently from God, and this provoked God's disapproval. A central part of what we're going to read is found for us in 11.6. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. So the sin of the people at Babel will result in their expulsion from the area, which will eventually lead to a massive migration, and the table of nations that we read about in chapter 10, will then become established. So very broadly speaking, the setting of Babel is the same as the garden, since the gardens Tigris and Euphrates rivers, referenced in Genesis 2.14, are in the same region as the plain of Shinar that we're going to read about in 11 verse 2. So after departing the ark, the people migrated from Mount Ararat, southeast to the lower Euphrates Valley. And so Genesis 1 through 11, these 11 chapters, has then become full circle from Eden all the way through the flood and then back to the region of Eden, both remembered for their expulsion of their residents. Only Adam and Eve lived in the garden. They were expelled. The people who were at the Tower of Babel were eventually expelled as well. So most believe that the Tower of Babel event takes place approximately 100 to 150 years after the flood. Some would argue and extend it to around 300 years or so after the flood. But the genealogical information of chapter 10 gives us Two people that are highlighted, which helps us to set some kind of a timeline. The first one is Peleg, who was born to Eber. 
Peleg means division, and this reverse refers to the dividing of the people at the Tower of Babel. We talked about that some last week. The second character also discussed last week is Nimrod, the mighty warrior who was the first king with the first empire, and his empire was Babel. So this sets for us a bit of a timeline. It's Pretty difficult to determine with precision exactly how long was how long it took from the time of the the uh, uh, disembarking the ark to the establishment of the Tower of Babel. 150 years seems like a reasonable amount of time to set here. So it is Bab- excuse me, it is Babylon. Or excuse me, Babel becomes a type or a typological representation for eventual Babylon, which represents wickedness and total rebellion against God. It is Babylon that will one day invade Judah and exile its people into subjugation over all of the region. So it is Babylon that is chastised by the prophets. Isaiah 13:19 says, And Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is where the prophets see Babel as a typological representation of Babylon, which represents evil and wickedness. Babylon became a symbol in Jewish writings, and the early church for corrupt Rome, which was what had subjugated the Jews into a... Uh, free kind of slavery, if you will. They were not a free people. They were allowed to worship as they saw fit, but they were also controlled by the, by the Roman people, not able to live as they would prefer. So Babylon could represent any anti-God power, whether past or future, that the that persecuted the righteous community. This is what is alluded to in the book of, of Revelation as a future battle law that would oppose the rule of God and create havoc within the history of people. So this sets, sets a stage for our study. Again, not all that could or should be said is able to be said in a single message. So as we continue with the sons of Noah, we begin a new section here, number four, in the Tower of Babel. We're going to read verses one through nine of Genesis 11. Let's read these verses together. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language, and this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now what is being said here is going to extend back into Genesis 10 
over the table of nations and actually beyond the table of nations as described because in fact all of humanity would eventually be scattered over the entire face of the earth and there's really not any place outside of the remotest parts of Antarctica or some of the really harsh deserts where there are not dwellings of people who now call this their home. So as we look at the Tower of Babel, we're going to begin looking at letter A, the setting. Again, verse 1. Now the whole earth used the same language and the same words. Now this verse makes very clear that this is a prequel to the establishment of the table of nations as laid out for us in chapter 10. So letter I, there is but a single language. What does that mean? It means there's only one language. Everyone used the same language and the same words. These are not synonyms that are saying the same thing twice. There's actually a very clear distinction here but by what Moses is choosing to say. The literal Hebrew here is they have one lip and one vocabulary. It is indicating that there is a singular language and a singular vocabulary that enables all people to understand everybody as one language would imply. They not only have the same language, but they use the exact same words and they have the exact same meanings. I know that, excuse me, I know the English language, that is my native language. Even in America, you can go into different regions of America and say the same word and it's going to have a slightly different meaning, isn't it? That's inherent with a different vocabulary, even though there is a single language. We can say things in England and South Africa and Australia and New Zealand and other parts of the world that speak English and know the English language, but they cannot always clearly understand what is being said. Why? Because there are variations in vocabulary. An example of this, we came from Britain for the most part. And as you look at words in the United States and words in the United Kingdom, they mean different things. United States says French fries. United Kingdom says chips. They, we say cotton candy. They say candy floss. We say apartment. They say flat. We say garbage. They say rubbish. We say cookie. They say biscuit. We say parking lot, they say car park. We say pants, they say trousers. You get the idea, right? It goes on and on and on. And as you go into other regions that don't speak English as their native language, the words that we say are not going to be what we mean for them to understand. One language and one vocabulary means there is absolute unity and what is being said, and what is being understood. There are no barriers in language. There is absolute clarity in communication, and there is no barrier in being united that is troublesome when there is not clarity in language and in vocabulary. The multiplicity of languages was not yet created... That's going to happen. There was but one language and one vocabulary. Well, there's a single language, but double I, there is complete disobedience. Verse 2 says, It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, this isn't quite so obvious in the English reading, 
And depending upon how much study we, we have done, you have done individually, about the previous chapters, there are some subtleties here that are interesting and important to bring out. We have the beginnings of things going very, very wrong after the flood through the sons of Noah. The first one is you'll notice that they journeyed east. They journeyed east from where they departed the ark at Mount Ararat into the valley, the Tigris-Euphrates Valley, and it's called the land of Shinar. So far in Genesis, whenever someone journeys east, it reflects movement away from God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, not every time someone goes east, it means that, but so far in our study, that is exactly what it means. For example, when Adam and Eve sinned, and they were expelled from the garden, we read in Genesis 3.24, so he, God, drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim, and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So the, the cherubim stood at the east, of the Garden of Eden, and that's where Adam and Eve went. They went east, away from the presence of God. When Cain killed his brother, it tells us in Genesis 4.16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of, of Nod, east of Eden. And so here we have the reality that when they disembarked from the earth, from the ark, they journeyed east into the land of Shinar, and this represents movement away from God. Now the second subtlety that is here for it, for us is this. The command upon exiting the ark was to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. Here, they have settled instead of spread out, and this reflects the spiritual condition of Cain, who killed his brother. When Cain was banished from God's presence and went east, he was relegated to a life of wandering, but what did Cain do? He didn't wander. He said, I'm going to show God, I'm going to stay right here. And he had his sons, and they built vast cities. Cain was never a wanderer. He chose to rebel against God's banishment. He chose to do his own thing. And in Cain, we find the seed of rebelliousness that indicates the kind of spiritual nature that is indicative of those who have moved away from God. Similarly here, the descendants of Noah are not filling the earth. They are settling down and they are going to build a great city. What is the name of that great city? It is the city of Babel. So for simplicity, we're going to look at the remainder of these verses in two sections. So the first section that we're going to look at here, letter B, is the desires of man. Now, there's a lot of wordplay here, and it gets repeated as we look at the next section. And I'm not going to get into all of that because it's very technical within the Hebrew language. But there's a play on the order of the consonants that are used here. And then when God speaks, the order of the consonants are reversed, which indicates what man desires to do, God is going to undo. 
And so there's wordplay not only in the order of the consonants, but in the sound these words make as man speaks and then as God speaks. If you are a linguist like my brother Gene over here, you might want to go in and look at that and study and go, wow, that's pretty cool. Gene would go, 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 go. Talk about it, talk about it. I'm not going to do that. I'm sorry. Too deep and, and too difficult. But here we have the desires of man. We're going to look at this together very quickly. Verses 3 and 4. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. Verse 4. And they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make a name for ourselves. Excuse me, let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So verse 3 is the means. Verse 4 is the ends. Making these bricks is a means to an end. And that is what is presented to us here in the actions of man. It exposes the true nature of the heart and the true desire of the people to become great apart from God and to elevate themselves in their pride and to fulfill their own wicked desires. Let us do these things. That is what they are saying. Come let us, that phrase marks the unified action of the people and there is no disagreement. There's no record of there being any question, of there being any discussion, as there being any alternate plans. This was Nimrod's Babel. He was the ruler of these people. They spoke with absolute clarity and they agreed together to do these very things. They're going to make bricks and by baking them, these bricks are going to become like stones, which is going to make them incredibly strong and sturdy, capable of building high buildings and this high tower. And they are going to use tar for mortar. Now it is known that in this region, the materials to make brick and to make tar are very plentiful. And this for the people at Babel is an ingenious way of building a strong and a solid structure. This brick and mortar building style became a common way of building in later times, but it appears to originate right here. It is not known how much of Cain's civilization built from his sons was passed on through the sons of Noah after the flood, but this appears to be the origination of making brick and baking them and creating mortar or tar out of the natural resource around them and making this incredibly strong and stable tower that they are going to build for themselves. So verse 4 gives us the threefold purpose of making these bricks and what man has determined to do together. Again, in the letter I, they are going to make a city. Verse 4a, they said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city. This is their social goal. The social goal was to maintain their unity under the wicked rule of Nimrod, who was known as the rebel, because if they are unified, nothing can stop them, not even God, in their own estimation. You know, it's a very prideful thing to say, come let us do this, and if we are able to do this, then there's nothing that can stop us. 
That's testing God. That is challenging God. It is denying the reality of who God actually is. But this appears to be what it is that people are determining to do for themselves. It is to build a city, not to go and fill the earth as the Lord has instructed, but to establish a place for themselves. Second purpose that we see here is to build a tower. Some commentators argue that city and tower are to be understood synonymously, but I don't believe that's right. I believe that this tower actually means something more than just the city. Those that middle part of verse 4, 4b, they're going to build a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. So different from a city that would spread outwards, they want to build a tower that is going to be built upward. So the purpose of the tower was to reach into heaven, and this becomes their religious goal. The social goal to build a city, to stay united. The religious goal to build a tower into the heavens. So Babel literally means, in the Hebrew, gate of God. This is what is designed, this is what is in their mind, in building this tower that will reach into the heavens, or into heaven, and that is to build a gate of God. By building a tower in Babel, it is widely understood that their desire was to build a tower that would reach into heaven so that the little g-gods could descend and ascend back back, back and forth into heaven, onto the earth, back and forth, and they could then connect with men. Now, what will we say about the desire for the little g-gods to descend out of the heavens and connect with men? Would we not say that this is idolatry? Would we not say that this is the beginning in the new world after the flood of worshiping someone and something other than the great God Yahweh who saved these people? As the gate of God, they wanted access to the realm of the divine, and they were going to access the realm of the divine by building a tower into the heavens. There's a similar terminology in in Jacob's ladder in the dream, where in his vision he could see God ascending and descending. And this is the idea that is communicated here. This is what most scholars and commentators believe, is that this is what the people wanted to do. They wanted to build a gate so that they could access the divine realm. The little g-gods could descend and ascend back and forth and connect with men. This infers their desire was to commune and worship these little g-gods in place of and instead of the one true God. This desire goes right back into the Garden of Eden where Eve believed the lie that by disobeying God, she would actually become like God, knowing good and evil. You see, if we don't know what God has said, and if we don't believe what God has said, then anything anyone else says can lead us to do things that God does not want us to do. When God said, don't eat the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die, Satan distorted that and said, God's trying to hold you back. He knows in the day you eat, you're going to be like God. Isn't that a good thing? Well, it's not a good thing, and it wasn't a good thing. It did bring about death. 
And so this is the same kind of mentality, the same kind of spirituality that was present in the serpent's temptation, that was present in Cain's rebellion, being expressed right here. The people of Babel want to become like the little g-gods to commune with them with no regard for what the real God has said or what the real God desires. They want to decide for themselves. So they want to build this city, they want to build this tower, and they have this, this desire to make for themselves a name. This is, excuse me, 4C says, and let us make our, for ourselves a name. This is their psychological goal to make for themselves a name. It highlights their pride, their self-will, their complete rebellion against what God has said and what God has desired, what God desires. So even though this may be 100 to 150 years, don't think for a minute that the ancestors did not know and did not repeat the command of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. They basically took that command and said, nah, I don't think that's what we want to do. We want to build a city. We want to build a tower. We want to make for ourselves a name. They didn't want to make a name for God. They have moved away from God. They wanted to make for themselves a name. This is their great ambition. This is their desire expressed by the phrase, Come, let us. Come and let's do this thing. Let's not think about God. Let's not worry about God. Let's not be bothered by God. Let's do this thing. In the face of the command of God to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, the people of Babel said, no. So the last part of verse 4 expresses the true motivation of doing these things, the true rationale for expressing it this way. And verse 4D says... Otherwise, if we don't build a city, if we don't build a tower, if we don't make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Do you see that there? What they're saying is what God has said we don't want. We don't want to do what God says we're supposed to do. We don't want to be where God tells us to go. We want to decide for ourselves. They wanted... Their city, they wanted their gate of God, they wanted their name, they didn't want anything to do with God. This brings us to the second section here, and this is the actions of God. Let's start with verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. A couple of things to note here. The first one is this, apparently their tower is complete. That's what it implies. It was completed. God came down to see... The tower the sons of men had built. They likely looked at this tower with smug satisfaction at what they had accomplished. And now God is going to evaluate this great achievement of this unified people with a singular language and vocabulary. It says the Lord came down. You'll notice there in your Bible that Lord is all caps. That indicates this is Yahweh, not Elohim, not some other God. This is Yahweh, the one true God, the one that rules and reigns from His throne on high. Yahweh came down to look. Now this is anthropomorphic. 
God didn't literally come down. He could see the tower. He could see the tower before the tower was even built. He knew exactly what was going to happen. But Moses tells us, tells the readers, that Yahweh came down. No matter how high the tower was, no matter how high the tower ever could be, it will never, ever reach God. He's too great. He's too mighty. He's too out of reach for man. So God God had to come down to get to the tower. It's not as if God said, oh, they made a tower, there it is. I wonder what this is all about. God is so high, He had to go down to see what man had built in this miraculous achievement. God always has to come down to man because man is so far beneath God. We can't even appreciate how far beneath God we actually are. You can go to some of these massive towers where they have the glass floor and you can tiptoe out and you can go, man, that's a long way down there. I don't even see the people down there. Well, we would say, that's a long, long way beneath me. Infinitely, God is above us. Infinitely, we are beneath Him. So far so that we can't even appreciate just how far above us God really is. God always has to come down to man because man is so far beneath God. What this does is it accentuates the absolute, complete sovereignty of God. Man cannot reach Him. Man cannot supplant His rule. Man can never replace His authority. So God comes down, this anthropomorphic explanation to the readers about what God has done. So the first thing we see here, letter I, God evaluates. Verse 6, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language and this is what they began to do and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Now where it says they began to do, does not apply they have now begun to build the tower, but they have built the tower, and this is the beginning of what it is they desire to do in their self-will, rebellious rule. God sees the commitment to settle in, to give themselves over to this unified wickedness, and so this evaluation is the post-flood equivalent of what God saw on the earth after the sons of God came to the daughters of men in chapter 6. Do you remember that? Genesis 6-5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is the condition of man pre-flood. This is still the condition of man post-flood. And this is what is being celebrated and exhibited at the Tower of Babel under the wicked rule of the mighty warrior Nimrod. Nothing has really changed. After the flood, God decorrupted the earth because the hearts, excuse me, nothing has changed because the hearts of man are thoroughly corrupt. God could erase mankind with a flood every thousand years and the story would be the same because the hearts of man are only evil continually. So since man, since the people of Babel are unified in their their desires and in their rebellion, there isn't anything standing in their way to give themselves over to complete and total wickedness. Think about it like this. In our modern world, we have seen in the last 50, 60 years, we have seen dictators rise up 
They have absolute power. They have absolute control. They have absolute authority. And they rule with an iron fist. And they will kill anyone and everyone who stands in their way. They will even commit genocide, killing their own people. Why? Because they've given themselves over to complete and total wickedness. Thinking back to when the United States went in to Iraq and overthrew Saddam Hussein, who was one of the most powerful rulers in the Middle East, when it was known that he was dead, you remember what the people did? They went out and they began to tear down the statues of Saddam Hussein. Why? Because they knew he was a ruthless, murderous dictator. He had given himself over completely to having absolute authority, ruling with an absolute wicked desire to kill anything and anyone, anyone and everyone that would stand in his way. So this is what man is beginning to do, communicated through the Tower of Babel. God sees this, and this is what God knows. Since they're unified in these desires, God is going to take action. Now, God is not threatened by what man can do. He's troubled by what man will do when humanity is left to unchecked and unrestrained wickedness. God is troubled by what man will do when there are no restraints. And in the world of these ruthless dictators, there are no restraints. Hitler, Stalin, Hussein. The list goes on and on and on. And so God sees what is coming and He's troubled by what is coming. And here God intervenes. They would build up a delusion of self-sufficiency through their false religion, through their corporate security and being unified, this political uniformity indicated by speaking of the same language and having the same vocabulary. They would throw off God and attempt to rule the universe. And in this delusional position, they would never, ever turn to God. They would instead create a God in their thinking, in their image, fitting and suiting their desires as opposed to recognizing the one true God. Their Babylonian hearts, if you will, would become impenetrable and irredeemable. This is what God sees that is happening to humanity through the building of the tower because He sees the hearts of the people. He knows what it is they're giving themselves to and this is not God's plan and this is not God's desire. So, Letter double I, God disrupts. Again, there's more wordplay here. God says, come let us go down. And again, it's these consonants and these word sounds that are now in reverse order, indicating that God is going to undo what man has designed to do. So verse 7 says, come, let us go down and there confuse our language so they will not understand one another's speech. And so God mimics the words of man and says, let us go down. It's another one of these Trinitarian decisions that are verbalized as if they are actually talking to one another. Moses takes us into the heart of God so we can hear his words as God is making this decision to go and undo what man has determined in his heart to do. So God goes down and confuses their language 
And all of the sudden, like that, there isn't one language. There are many languages. There is no longer the unity that was once experienced. There is now mass confusion. People are, what are you saying? And I can't understand you. What is going on here? Nothing makes any sense. I don't know, I don't know what you're saying. So the languages of chapter 10 are present, even though the nations are not yet established, but they will be very, very soon as God's plan is played out. And they scatter away from the Tower of Babel. So all of the people groups that had their own unique language as expressed in the Table of Nations were present at the Tower of Babel and they'd never heard these languages before. They, they couldn't understand one another. And so what we see here is that God scatters the people. Verse 8, So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city. The tower was built, the city is stopped, because now there was no longer any unity, and God started scattering the people into the individual groups that are referenced for us in Genesis chapter 10. God scatters them over the whole earth. And as we looked at the map last time, and all those different regions and all those different places, we aren't told how God did that, that God did it. We don't know if God picked them up and moved them. We don't know if they just started migrating as if they had no choice in the matter. We aren't told how, but we're told that God did that. We aren't told how God brought all of the animals to the ark to line up in an orderly two-by-two single-line fashion. But God did that. If God wants to move people around, He can move them around. That is not a problem. God's not saying, oh, i got to do this thing. How am I going to do this thing? God just says it, and it does. And it happens, and it is completed. So the people began to move into their language groups all over the world. Japheth's family was moved into Indo-European areas, across Russia, likely eventually across into North America and down into South America. Ham's family went into Africa and Asia, into the Far East and some of the parts of Canaan. Shem's family went north and east and included the Semitic people primarily that you would find in the Middle East. God's purpose was established despite the sinful rebellion of man. And that's the point that Moses wants to make to the nation of Israel who is with him in the wilderness on the verge of entering into the promised land. Verse 9, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. And so the city, the tower, the name of Babel is not known for its greatness, but instead it is known for the powerful, sovereign work of the Lord. The nation of Israel of Moses' day is now better prepared to hear of the one to whom God would choose to give a covenant to Abraham that we'll begin to see in chapter 12. He is the father of their nation. And as a part of this great nation, they are included in the great promises of God. They possess confidence in a great and powerful God, greater than the most powerful peoples on the earth, as seen at the Tower of Babel, as experienced in the nation of Egypt, from whom they had been enslaved. 
and the people that they are about to encounter are going to oppose them and oppose their God. But don't worry, because your God is greater. Your God is more powerful. Your God is sovereign. His rule cannot be supplanted no matter what it looks like to you. God is, and God will be, and you belong to Him. So this is what Moses is doing. He's preparing his audience to understand ancient past, the sons of Noah, how the world is going to be created through these sons, who the people are that you're going to soon encounter, and the reality is this, they are still under the sovereign rule of God no matter what it looks like to you, no matter what it sounds like to you, God is in control. You can trust Him. you think that's a powerful message for the nation of Israel as they've come out of Egypt's enslavement? Do you think that's a powerful message to the martyred and persecuted church all over the world that God is bigger, God is stronger, God is more powerful? Is it an encouraging reminder to us today to know that no matter what happens in our culture, which is on a fast track to removing God entirely, from the, from the culture's consciousness, is it good to remember that God is greater and He rules from on high and nothing will ever change that no matter where we find ourselves, no matter how, no matter how hard things come to be, God is, God will always be, and we belong to Him. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this incredible reminder about the great God that You